Good morning. So uh, Ray is uh, on vacation uh, this week, taking some much-needed time off. Uh, last Sunday, we wrapped up a long series in the book of First Peter called Aliens, uh, where we capped that uh, series with an incredible message where Ray and uh, a Sudanese pastor named Saul lives here in the, in the DuPage County area. Um, they unpacked his story. And if you missed last week, I would really encourage you uh, to, to go to our website and listen to it or download it off of iTunes uh, from our podcast because it was one of those capstone moments. It was a powerful, powerful, transformational message. Uh, and I would encourage you to, to take a listen. So we are going to spend some time this morning in between the end of that series and the beginning of the Influence series next week, talking about what is likely a a fairly familiar chapter of the Bible. But it's got some really radical statements in it, and I want to unpack it just a little bit. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you take it out? We're going to be in John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chair in front of you, and I'd encourage you to take one out, follow along with us as we go through it. If you don't have a Bible at home, please steal one of ours. We would love for you to have that and to take it home. In fact, I'm going to ask you at one point to to circle a passage in it, to write in your Bible and to make some comments in the margin. And if you're using one of our Bibles, circle it anyway. Leave it for the person that comes behind you because it's a powerful section of Scripture. So before we do, I'd like to pray. And so, Father, we are grateful that you do promise to break every chain, to forgive us of our sin. Thank you for loving us enough to shed your blood and to break your body on the cross for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So you'll notice in John chapter 6, you'll notice that it starts out with a very familiar heading. Jesus feeds the 5,000. I'm not going to read that because what I want to get to is towards the end of the chapter, but let me give you a little bit of context. So Jesus is traveling, his ministry is catching fire, and people are hearing him, and they're drawn to his message. And at this point, a crowd of, as the Bible would say, 5,000 people. But we also know that in that day, only men were counted. So it could be 10, 15, could be even 20,000 people are gathered listening to Jesus teach. And they grow hungry. And so Jesus, in an age of no refrigeration and no electricity and no mass transit, feeds 20,000 people out of nothing. It's a miracle. And the people recognized it as a miracle. And the beauty, John tells us, the beauty of the story is that there were leftovers, which was incredibly uncommon. This, this miracle has only happened one other time in human history, which is in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel has been, uh, is in exodus out of slavery. They're wandering in the wilderness. And God provides manna from heaven every day. They would have enough to eat and to survive. So the next section of John chapter 6 and verse starts with verse 16. We see another outstanding miracle. Jesus and his disciples, after having fed the 5,000, retreat to Capernaum, which is on the other side of this body of water. The disciples head out, literally leave Jesus behind. And while they are waiting for Jesus to catch up, a storm develops on the sea. And the disciples freak out. They start rowing in a panic to get to the other side. And one of them looks up and they see a figure approaching. And it's Jesus walking on the water to bring comfort 
to the disciples. So this is where we find ourselves in verse 25. Jesus has just fed 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 people, and he's just walked on water. And so we look at verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? You can sense the irritation with the crowd. Listen, we're trying to keep up. We're trying to follow you. <laughs> did you did you ditch us? What exactly is happening here? And Jesus responds to them by saying, very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You're not here because you saw the signs and believed that I was the Messiah. You're here because you want another free meal. But Jesus is going to help them to understand that there's more to this than just a free meal. Look at verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. You see, there's something way more important here than just food. Food wasn't readily available, and Jesus knew that. He knew it was something that they needed in that moment. And he communicated an extra measure of his grace by there being leftover. Unless you were royalty, you never left the table full. But these people left that meal full, and there was leftovers. But Jesus is saying, don't work just for food. Don't work just to get by. There's something bigger and more important at stake here. Don't just work for the things that you think will provide you security, sustenance, your bank account, your job, your future. And so he's communicating this truth to the crowd and they ask him, what must we do to do the work God requires? There it is. One of the big questions of the Bible. If you have a spiritual bone in your body, that is likely a question you have asked yourself and you've asked of God. What must I do to do the works God requires? In other words, what do I need to do to get God on my side? What do you want me to do? Do I need to go to church every day, every week, 2.3 times a month? Do I need to give 5%, 10%, 12%? What do I need to do? The question really is, how do I get God on my side? And it's a formula. And it's about religion. And Jesus wasn't about either of those two things. The message of the Bible, the message of the gospel, is that there is nothing you or I can do to get God more on our side than he already is. But they don't get that. And so they ask him another question. In verse 29, and Jesus responds in verse 29 by saying, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Are you supposed to believe in a philosophy, a religion? No, the work of God is this, to believe in the one, the person, Jesus. But again, the crowd is, yeah, 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 we get that. Let's get to the meal. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're saying, what sign are you going to give us to believe? Let's do the meal thing again. That worked out well for me. I enjoyed that one. You know where I got all that I could possibly want and there was a little left over? Let's do that one again, Jesus. And Jesus responded to them by saying, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Yes, your parents and grandparents ate manna, but it wasn't from Moses. And it wasn't the true bread that I give you in eternal life. It was a gift from God. 
It was the very definition of grace. Your parents ate it, but they died anyway because it was just physical food. But my Father is here to give you true bread, the bread from heaven. The bread that you need today comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See, for them this was different. This was different than the bread that their ancestors ate in the wilderness. This was a new deal for them. And so their response is classic. It's the same response that you and I would likely have. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Let's not mess around with the other bread anymore. You know that bread that just sort of miraculously appeared? Let's not mess around with that one. Let's give, it, give us the good bread, the bread that brings life. I want more of that bread. And their response, again, is this classic response. But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You see, for them, there was a hunger in their heart. And for you and I this morning, there is a hunger in our heart, a desire for purpose and for meaning and for significance. There's a hunger or a need to be forgiven, to be connected to the Heavenly Father, the one who loves you and created you, provides power for your life. And Jesus is saying very clearly, you cannot find that bread in the world. I am the only source, the only sustenance. I am the bread of life. Your soul is thirsty for these things and you are only going to quench that thirst with me. And the crowd responds by grumbling, complaining, saying things like, we know your parents. What do you mean you came down from heaven like manna? They didn't believe, they didn't get it. And so it brings us to this crescendo moment. And it's why I love the way John writes because it's very narrative. It tells a story and we hit this crescendo moment in the story and Jesus is gonna whack him across the face with this most radical of statements, arguably the most confusing and outrageous statement he makes while he's on earth. In fact, it's so important to him that he says it three times. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What? That's craziness. Can you imagine? What in the world is Jesus saying? And it's like deer in the headlights. 20,000 people staring at me in your crickets in the background. So he hits him across the face again and he says a second time, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day for my flesh a third time. My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Okay, turn to your neighbor and explain that uh, to them. Tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. You can feel the tension that that statement brings to the story. The crowd didn't understand. The 12 closest disciples won't even get it until much later when they're in the upper room before Jesus was to be crucified. And do you know how they responded? Look down at verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Up until this moment, as John is telling the story, there were huge crowds around Jesus. And after this moment, the crowds began to leave. And what's important about that is up until this point, the 12 disciples were literally rock stars. They were the people hanging out with the guy who was doing Moses-like miracles. They were the guys who were watching Jesus walk on the water. They were rock stars. And you can feel the tension that as the crowd dissipates, 
they begin to think to themselves, wait a minute, where's everybody going? You see, the crowds provided a buffer. They knew the truth that would play out later on down the road that as long as there was a crowd, as long as the public momentum was in favor of Jesus, the religious and the spiritual leaders of the day couldn't hurt him which is what they so desperately wanted to do. And they start to think, the disciples start to think to themselves, this may not work out very well for me. Up until now, I was getting a lot more than I was giving. And they're faced with the stark reality that following Jesus may cost them something. But you know, you know, this isn't just their story, is it? It's all of our stories. All of us face this moment where we recognize that following Jesus may, in fact, cost me something. I've had those moments. I remember uh, the, in between my freshman and sophomore year of college where I knew God was leaning me towards this area of ministry, of being a pastor, but I really wasn't sure this is what I wanted. I wasn't sure that this was the right thing for me. There were other options on the table for me that would be a lot easier. Quite frankly, I didn't know if anyone was going to marry me as a pastor. And I thought, I can't do this single. That's horrible. I'm not going to be able to do that. I can't do ministry that way. a lie. Whether you're single, not single, married, not married, God's provision is the same. And God wanted me on a path, but I was in argument with him. And there was a decision there for me to say, I'm going to step away. We've all had those moments. If you've been around Christ long enough, you've had a moment like that in your life. But look at what Jesus says. He senses the moment and he reaches out to them in the midst of their doubt. And he says in verse 67, you do not want to leave too, do you? The crowd is leaving and they're considering their options. And Jesus looks at them and he knows their heart and he says, you're not thinking of leaving too, are you? The cost of following Jesus was getting steep. And the 12 are faced with some decisions. Maybe in your job, in your everyday existence, Maybe your industry doesn't value you being a Christian. The whole truth-telling, honesty, transparency, being principles-based, maybe that doesn't work out well for you in your industry. And they would kind of prefer you not be a Christian. And all of a sudden, there's this, it's going to cost me something moment. Or maybe it was for you back in the day in college where you said, there's lots of great things happening around me that are in conflict with what I believe. Maybe I should choose that path over this path. I've been there. You've been there. It's not just the story of the 12. It's our story too. And we realize that I have to say no to me in order to fully say yes to Jesus. And this is where the 12 find themselves. They're staring at the dirt. The crowd is gone. Jesus is looking right at them and he's asking this incredible question. And Peter, in a moment of brilliance, responds to him this way, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of of eternal life. Where am I going to go? You're the one that's proclaiming eternal life. What other philosophy, religion, outlook, lifestyle, what other stuff in this world is going to give me eternal life? What else is going to promise me a life of meaning, a life of significance and purpose? Where else can I go? And in our own lives, we're faced with doubt and decision, whether or not to walk away or to stay put. This is the question. If not Jesus, then who? If not Jesus, then what? What I realized in that moment, sitting on that bed in my dorm room, I realized that 
Backing away from Jesus in that moment meant backing into something else. There is no other place that I could go to resolve that internal conflict to satisfy the hunger of my heart. Where else was I to go? In my years of being a pastor, there is a common storyline. There's a common thread to the stories that I hear in people's lives. I was around church. As a kid, I prayed a prayer, but then something tragic, massive, complex happened in my life, and I stepped away from God. I didn't realize that backing away from Jesus automatically meant I would back into something else. But I went down a road and I started to pursue the things that would make me secure. I started to pursue happiness, anything that would brought me satisfaction. And then my life utterly fell apart. And I was left in the ruins and the rubble of my life and I crawled my way back to Jesus. The details and the plot lines differ, but that common thread I hear over and over and over and again. And why is it that people crawl back to Jesus? Because only he has the words of eternal life. And Peter continues this moment of insight when he says, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Peter's saying, while I might be confused right now, I've seen too much, I know too much to walk away now. I've experienced your love, your forgiveness, your kindness, your grace. We've experienced life change and we cannot, we must not go back. This is not an easy passage of scripture to understand. And so I want to bring it home in such a crystal clear way that in the moments we have left before we celebrate communion, I want to unpack just the pieces of this statement in three different ways. First, Jesus is saying we've got to eat and we've got to drink. There's no way around it. You've got to have food and you've got to have water to live your life. Just like you can't get by without food or drink, you cannot get by without me spiritually. Jesus is saying, I am essential. And so in that, he then turns a corner and he says, the second thing, eat my flesh. Why in the world would he say that? As I mentioned earlier, later the disciples would understand it. We have the ability to look over the whole council of Scripture and have a little bit better understanding. But he's talking about the idea of Passover. And as he's sitting in the upper room with his disciples, he wants to leave them with a reminder. And he said, this is my body broken for you. This is a picture of my body that would eventually hang on a cross and be broken for you. John, the author of this book, starts out in chapter 1, verse 1, by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's power in that statement. In the beginning was the Word, God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, he wraps up that most amazing truth when he says, And the Word, God, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He became flesh and bones so that He could understand and relate and walk the journey that we walk. So here in the upper room, Jesus is illustrating with the bread that we need to make Jesus, this broken body, a part of us. That would be so critically important because how often do we forget the broken body? How often do we forget that ultimate sacrifice so that you and I can live a life of freedom? He became flesh to be with you, to convince you, to love you. There is no more powerful illustration of God's love for you than the leaving of heaven to walk in our shoes and then die our death. 
It screams to the world, there isn't anything I won't do for you, no place I won't go to show you how much I love you. He gets you, he knows you, and he's saying here, you need to consume this truth. Eat, ingest, and digest this truth. I am the bread of life, and this bread is the picture of my body broken for you. And then he takes a cup, and he says this third thing, drink of my blood. What an unusual thing to say. But again, the Passover and Jesus and a a requirement of sacrifice to cover our sin. In fact, you could come away from reading the Old Testament and think that maybe God was this bloodthirsty God who just required sacrifice all over the place. But there had to be a price to pay for our sin. And in the Old Testament, it was about this sacrificial lamb or this animal sacrifice that blood would be, innocent blood would be shed. And it wasn't to necessarily cover that sin. It was to paint a picture of what was to come. It was about a promise of the perfect Lamb of God that would one day walk the earth and get up on a cross where his body would be broken and his blood would be shed to cover our sin. Why is this so important? Because sin will destroy you. The Bible is very serious about the subject of sin. Sin is that point where we step over the boundary that God has designed for us and we walk away from the plan that God has created for us and we do our own thing. But Christ put himself on the cross so that your sins and brokenness can be covered, forgiven. And Jesus is saying, I do this so that I can restore you to the relationship that you're designed to have, that I can break the power of sin in your life so that the life that you live is one of freedom. Everything that sin has stolen, I am giving back to you in, in a restorative way. This is my body given for you. This is my blood given for you. And what's the one thing that the passage says is required of us to receive that? Four times in this passage, Jesus himself says in verse 29, 35, 40, and 47, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. Over and over, four times in this passage, Jesus is saying, to receive eternal life, you must believe in me. So how does this happen? In Romans, the Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouths and we believe with our heart that this Jesus is the Messiah, then we are saved. That's it. It's not about religion. It's about grace. We must believe and we must confess. So in the few moments, we're going to celebrate communion together. But before we do that, I want to give each one of you a moment to contemplate that truth. That what is required of me is simply to confess and believe. Maybe today you are going to believe and confess for the very first time. Or maybe today you need to pause and acknowledge that you've been in a season of doubt. Or maybe you got one foot out the door. And this morning, something that we've read or something that you've heard makes you want to step back in. 
So I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to ask you to take a moment as the elements are being passed to you to just take the cup, take the bread and hold it in your hand and use this moment of reflection to wrestle a bit with God. Father, we thank you this morning that you loved us enough to put yourself on the cross, to die in my place, to cover my sin. And God, as we journey with you this morning, I ask that you would give every person in this room the courage and the strength to analyze their heart and identify their need and to confess with their mouth and believe with their heart. Thank you for loving us. In your name we pray. Amen.